working together with customers side by side, seeing what questions, what challenges they have, that gets you much, much closer to that, what we call technology with purpose, the purpose side. Welcome to your brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Minds, Machines, and the Gradient Descent. Thanks for tuning in again to geek out with us over the fascinating field of AI and the role of humans. We are Uli and Avery, your hosts today, and we are already super excited for you to listen to this very special episode. So please join us in welcoming our genius mind today. He is not only passionate about technology that serves the purpose of solving the pressing challenges of our time, but also about the people who make it happen. As an inspirational leader, he loves to empower teams and make them thrive so they can grow to the next level. And I'm talking about none other than Peter Körte, the Chief Technology and Strategy Officer here at Siemens. Peter, welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining us today. We're so happy that you took some time out of your busy schedule to be the guest on our podcast. And I guess we should start off with an easy question, right? So uh, in the past episodes, we identified a correlation between the passion for technology and a strong passion for music. Are we right? Are there any instruments you're playing or what song is currently on your hot rotation? Yeah, Avery, you're absolutely right. And um, I have to admit that uh, when I was a little bit younger, I did not like to play the instruments too much because I had to. But nowadays, actually, since I have the freedom to choose, I five years ago, I started to learn the piano and I love it because if you hit the, the C, you get a perfect C as a tune. And so it's a fabulous experience. It really relaxes your mind in an unprecedented way. The only challenge I have is that I'm learning this together with my three children and we only have one piano. So you can imagine there's always this fight over the piano. So that's not so relaxing, but playing the piano in itself is just awesome. So what song is it currently? Is it a little Mozart or are you rather, you know, mimicking some kinds of YouTube favorites, um, pop songs? Uh, it's all kind of things. Uh, right now it's Enrique Enaldo. And, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm playing all kinds of, you know, different, uh, film music or also some classic musics. And then of course now it's the Christmas time coming up and some Christmas carols, whatever comes along. Um, I have this very little book and, and so I just take that and whatever comes along and uh, whatever my bring, kids bring along. And if I think it, uh, it sounds nice, then I start actually playing it as well. Yeah, awesome. So are you inviting us to your next concert then? Hell <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm too shy in actually sharing that part, but but I'm I'm very happy to share everything else with regards to all the all the great stuff that you do. Yeah, awesome. Yes, you you bridge quite some worlds actually, and you you are also excellent in bridging some different contrasts. So let's say you you're juggling, you you know maneuvering different perspectives and also responsibilities also currently, right? Chief Strategy Officer, CTO, Chief Technology Officer at Siemens. Um, so you you will have and probably have some tensions in between. How do you see the, the, these both ambidexterities here? Do research have to be more strategic, right? Do strategic folks need to be more tech savvy? 
How do you deal with this occupation? And is there some kind of opposing perspectives you're dealing with it, uh, which solve and maybe also create um, some tensions to shape? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, uh, let's let's start with where actually it makes a lot of sense actually to, to do both. Uh, and uh, and ever since I had the pleasure of doing that, uh, it really it, it strikes you as why haven't we done that before? And the simple reason is that that when I look at technology, I look at future technologies. So so mm -hmm. technologies that are out three to five to ten years, mm -hmm. and really understanding of what their impact might be on society, but also on business. Um, now that is forward looking. And as you can imagine, a strategist is no different. So, so you're also forward looking. So both of them are looking into the future. They try to imagine of what's about to happen. The perspectives are different though. It's two different lenses. Uh, and of course the strategists are looking at profit pools and growth markets and all that kind of uh, fun stuff where you look at, you know, potential uh, to grow financially, that is. In technology, of course, you're looking at it in a bit different way, uh, where you're really looking for where can you make a difference, not necessarily from a from a um, from a money angle. Now, I think the the most important part is that you cannot take either. So, for example, if we take this very famous quote by Henry Ford, right? If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. So, in other words. Mm -hmm. If, if, uh, if our technologists go out there and ask our customers of what they wanted, it doesn't work. So they cannot do this alone. Vice versa, though, if we think about innovation, which is, to me, it's an equation that consists out of invention times commercialization. So yes, you need inventions, which is really changing the way we do things. But without commercialization, that is it's really it's not of added value to society and and therefore is not successful so you need to have both and um, of course languages are different very often personalities are very different too so if, if you like that's the tension but other than that i have to say that uh, bringing these two things together makes perfect sense amazing so but peter what is it that um, excites you most about your current job profile <laughs> about actually uh, really making things happen. Uh, I, I tell you, really, it's 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 the great thing is about to see so many different great technologies uh, and to see already uh, being some of them implemented at the first customer sites where we have co-creations. In particular now, as we get in the age of AI, you know, in the past when you did a lot of hardware developments, It was, or material science as an example, it was just fine to be in the lab for five years, 10 years, and you would do your thing and it was perfectly fine. In AI, it's very different. Unless you are in the super duper, you know, super advanced, of course, what's the next kind of algorithm and, and how can you really structure them? But if we, if we really take the more, let's say, you know, more standard algorithms like CNNs, you really have to apply them. And so working together with customers side by side, seeing what questions, what challenges they have, that gets you much, much closer to that, what we call technology with purpose, the purpose side. And it's a valuable feedback to our researchers also to really improve their models. So I like that because, you know, yet again, you bring different perspectives and make, seeing that happening and becoming real is, is I tell you, it's every time I see that, it's uh, very motivating uh, when they're going home. Yeah, I believe that.
So you, you were talking about convolutional neural networks. Uh, awesome with that. Let's talk about AI right away then, right? So AI in Siemens, and uh, I guess you see it also from this podcast uh, out there, folks, right? It's, it's somewhere, everywhere, right? We're talking about the IP. We're talking about additive manufacturing. We're talking about processes. We're talking about security. We're manufacturing. Right? So there's a lot of things happening, right? And it seems to that it continues to shape and transform somehow our products. So it's hard to pick, I guess, you know, in your position. But are there any use cases, you know, that it's at least currently you've been excited about and seen seen great flavor? Um, why maybe? Yeah, well, Oli, thanks. There's so many, you know. There's there's the ones that we actually use inside uh, Siemens uh, in the areas, for example, of quality control, really making our our production processes more more efficient and precise. When it comes down, for example, in Amberg, where you were using X-ray. Uh, pictures in order to determine whether the PCBs and the soldering has been accurate or not, which is actually an AI-based algorithm, which is fantastic. Or if we think about data centers uh, in our smart infrastructure business or the enabling twins that, that's coming in there. Think about the trains that we do to keep them up and running and, and really improve the efficiency. And that only works if you have a good understanding about what is about to break and if you can make those predictions. So that's where the whole area of predictive maintenance and preventative maintenance actually is coming into play. And then just recently, of course, at IAA, the uh, International Automotive uh, Fair in, uh, in Germany, uh, in Munich, we, we, had, uh, we had this autonomous charging station, which is mm. really fabulous because think about the future. You really don't want to get out of your car or if you have self-driving cars, they, they need to be, of course, autonomously charged. So mm-hmm. for that, you also need to apply AI. Now, also one thing that is really dear to my heart from my past is from Health and Ears, uh, where we developed also the ARVET companion that is assisting mm. radiologists in order not to just to improve the quality and the speed of their exams, but also to make them quantitative. Yeah, coming, going away from just describing in words of what you're seeing is really defining in metrics, hard data of how actually the picture looks like. These are all game-changing, really game-changing AI algorithms, which mm. I believe is going to make this a better place. Yeah, that's true. Um, the digital twin of everything, but pretty much I see it everything. It's somehow data fuel. It's somehow you know simulation uh, fueled, and uh, you can have a representation of these models everywhere applicable. And true. but if we if we look now, I don't know the past eight years or six years, right? I had the feeling that the hype on AI, where you know the the most of the aspects were driven like by let's say a big word here, digital transformation, or the getting the people, the folks, the colleagues acknowledgeable is you know on this key capability of what machine learning, what is data analytics, what can we do with data, right? And with that, I thought also I had the feeling that also the funding, the support for that doesn't necessarily came from, um, from let's say, a product development purposes, but rather from a change, from a culture, from a, you know, let's, let's transform our people, right? Let's help and shape that the people ambassador and learn how to deal with that, right? Well, the last two to three years, I would say, you know, this changed where, where the strategy felt like, okay, now it needs to show actually some value. We want to see, you know, it's the funding comes with all limited uh, a bit of amount, right? From now from product development. That means like, you know, we want to turn it into a sustainable business, right? We know about the capabilities. We know about the value. Now let's, let's shape customer value and shape the value in itself, right? And that means actually turning every, you know, everything should be IOTs nowadays. Now, uh, you know, 
connecting the world um, of digital, also an AI powered. You know, what is what is the biggest challenge for you? You know, f facing in maybe also the scaling, right? Um, from, you know, moving further from first crush to true love there. Before I go to the challenges, there are plenty. Um, I also would, would like to differentiate between actually AI that is embedded mm. as opposed to AI that is standalone. So, so take the examples that I just gave you. Uh, for, for the train, it is embedded. Yeah? It, it, we are not selling the AI algorithm directly only because and you cannot separate it from the overall system that you're selling. Mm. But something very important is happening there. In the past, we were just selling trains uh, through tenders to our customers, uh, which is about 10 to 20% of the total cost of ownership of a train. But 80 to 90% we did not see at all. But because we connected it and because we added AI to it, we all of a sudden had insights in the way the train was operating until at least 90% of, of its time where it's creating all this cost. All of a sudden, we, we formed these very strong relationships with our customers, and we even changed the business models because all of a sudden we had conversations about actually uptime and, and reliability, uh, or maintenance cost, and so on and so on. So, see, this is although this is not. It's very hard to say, you know, what this is just the number, and that's just because of AI if it is embedded. You're right, though. Um, we also want to, uh, let's say, sell AI algorithms that help our customers that are standalone. And there, it's a little bit more complicated for, for, for three reasons. The, the first one is actually connectivity. Um, so, so if you look in the industrial IoT uh, context where you think about all the moving parts and pieces, Many of the machines that you find are actually not having any jack where you can, you know, just plug in the cable and then you get the data out of it, mm. let alone being wireless or Bluetooth next, low energy, whatever that is, right? So it's getting the data out of the machine is a huge issue. Uh, and that out of many, many different fields of, of different manufacturers and different types of devices and speaking in different data formats, that's what we call brownfield connectivity. That's a big challenge, and mm. uh, the company that solves that first is actually, uh, you know, is going to have the best advantage because obviously no data, no AI. The next challenge with that is coming with data sharing, and that's where actually this is super important because no customer just let you, you share data because for the sake of it, and then you can do something with it unless you can demonstrate clearly that you have actually added value to, to for the customer, you're making something better. And by the way, we, we don't want A to have every data and also uh, we don't want to own the data either. It's uh, the fact of just having secondary use rights and having the ability to on, on, a, on a small data set to train the models and then to, to periodically improve them. Because as you know, in particular in the industrial space, there's a lot of super cold uh, frozen data, if you like, mm -hmm. because it's never being used and it's not of value anymore. So being very clear about that, that's another thing. And then lastly is the robustness. And, and since we are talking very often about critical infrastructure applications, as you can imagine, not only need the algorithm be super robust to all kinds of other variables, also you need to think about actually what happens in terms of when, when there's a power outage or whatever, or there's, there's a server lockdown or, or whatever that is. And these are things that uh, prevent you from scaling in a way like you see in the business to uh, consumer world uh, where it's, of course, if, if your app is breaking down, that's fine. Then you restart your iPhone or your, your, your Android device 
and then you're just fine, right? So mm -hmm. these are challenges. On the other hand, though, as I said, if you can clearly demonstrate the value to the customer, I've seen that this is a wonderful opportunity to get engaged. And Peter, you just mentioned the B2C realm, and I feel like many of these things have already been solved um, in the first wave of IoT, exactly in the B2C field, by the big hyperscalers, so Apple and Google and Amazon, and all of these huge companies from the US West Coast or from China that have those uh, big platforms holding vast amount of data, and many times even very personal data. and um, Those companies can build upon highly profitable, although even sometimes ethically questionable use cases that serves them as a starting point to increasingly enter the industrial domains. So, Peter, what is our answer here? What is the Siemens strategy to stay competitive, stepping increasingly into more competition with the hyperscalers? Yeah, well, uh, Abri, it's a, it's a, it's a, of course, it's a question that's being often asked. And um, first off, of course, the word of competition comes to mind. Sometimes we do collaborate, sometimes we do compete. Uh, more so, I would say we, we collaborate and we complement each other. Mm. So, so we are not in the business of selling cloud space or storage or, or compute, right? That's not what we do at Siemens. What we do is we work with customers out of industry, infrastructure, and mobility to solve their problems. And we don't do that from a cloud perspective. We do that from a what bothers you perspective. And then we try to find the best solution out of combination of our hardware and software. So, so we look vertically, right? So we look at all kinds of technologies that we can bring along and digital technologies being one tool, but not, not every tool that, that we bring. The second, uh, that's that's what we really do. Yeah? So we combine the real and the digital world, as we would say, and, and really try to bring the value. And that's exactly what we do also at, uh, at Volkswagen, where we bring the use cases and we collaborate with, with, with Amazon on, on uh, where they provide uh, the infrastructure in that sense. Yeah? So, so it does complement. Um, and by the way, our customers want that uh, be cloud agnostic. So, so the customers that we serve very often are global customers, right? So they're going to say, you know what, I'm going to run my, my factory in Germany and the United States, but also in China cannot go into China unless you are sitting on a Chinese cloud, as you said earlier. So you need to find a way, actually, how you can port this over. And I believe that actually brings huge value, what we do at Siemens. Now, what, what we really, I think, what, what differentiates us in a way is, is, for one, is when it comes down to data, it's about trust. Uh, and as Siemens, I think we have a lot of trustful relationships that we build over time. And since our customers know that we don't have intentions of reselling this data or doing, you know, anything, you know, uh, interesting with it, let me say it that way, um, that we, we, we have solidly there that, that we make them successful. There's the domain know-how, of course, that we really understand uh, how, for example, a, a, a train works and that you have to look for data on the doors because that's the part that's breaking the most. That you all need to know and just looking at a set of correlations not going to get you anywhere. There's the question about, of course, the installed base that we have because this is, of course, where we can connect and create that data. And then largely, don't forget, as Siemens, we also have a great tech stack. And I'm taking great pride in that uh, when it comes, for example, down to knowledge graphs or executable digital twins. There's a lot of great things that we can offer to our customers. And in, to me, this is actually, again, complementation. We, we, don't, we take the services 
like lambda functions and what have you uh, and, and identity and access management from others that's perfectly fine and we should not reinvent that at all mm. but when it comes down to very specific things such as uh, for example semi-automated labeling uh, of of data series in industrial contexts, we provide the tools in order to get our customers there and that's where Having that open mindset, collaborating with the uh, with the hyperscalers because it's not just the infrastructure, it's the services in particular that they provide. Taking them and then looking at where do we where what is missing for our industrial customers, adding to that, that's the value that I think we bring, and our customers do really recognize that. Nicely put. Yeah, thanks so much for pointing that out. So we have to know our strengths and work towards them. And <laughs> um, so. I would also be super interested to hear your opinion on AI regulation because there are a lot of people who make call it unfair or even parasitic that IT giants exploit the implicit value of their users' data and build their attractive use cases right upon it. And it's easy, it's an easy reflex to just claim for regulation that would finally put that game in balanced waters. And is that the typical European reaction of that crying child that doesn't want to enter the ring so do we just need to face the fact that times are tough and we just have to cope with it or is it in your opinion legitimate to ask for stricter regulations like the ai act of the eu is anyways planning to do yeah well i mean look first and foremost uh it's also the value that all of this brings and when, when we say of course yes we provide the data and we share the data with some of those those companies uh, they provide us a great deal of you know of comfort for free so it's that implicit uh pact that you have that that you say i share with you but therefore i get free services there is value exchanged And, uh, and we'll, we may not like it, but uh, we've been slow in Europe. I don't think that necessarily just putting up more regulations is going to get us there. Uh, maybe it, it does can regulate a few areas that are really critical. And, and again, in the industrial context, uh, AI is very critical. And as, as you said, with the AI Act, um, we do see that uh, it's being regulated. I don't think, though, that this should become our hallmark in Europe. Honestly, um, Europe should be really the most innovative region in the world in order to dream up new things and make them real, also apply them. Mm -hmm. I can tell you from, from my, my experience, having lived in the United States in eight years, and when we used AI there, we always looked at the opportunity that was coming out of the technology. In Europe, the first question was, what is the risk What is the, who, who's liable uh, and what is the potential downside to that? And I don't think that one way or the other is the right way, but for sure you have to start with the opportunity because just starting from the risk, then there's nothing, right? You have to create something and then you have to see whether that deserves any kind of regulation. And look, the, the, what I think is regulation is really ill-suited to do that. Okay, let me give you two examples. It's one is speed. Until finally we get an EU regulation up and running, I tell you, the technology has moved so much that, that it, there's no way that you can regulate it that way. We have the, the, the way of regulation is just too slow. And the second one is now we have this way of, of risk-based classification um, that, 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 that is kind of a good approach, but kind of not. For example, now everything that is critical infrastructure needs to be highly, highly regulated according to the EU. I disagree with that because let's take the train again. 
we have trained AI. Yeah, sure. If it's about the control of a, let's say, autonomous driving um, train, then yes, I do agree with that. But if it's about the doors and really saying when the doors are breaking, well, that should not be regulated because that is obviously that's a convenience factor. And here again, it shows you of how complicated that is to find a common ground for finding the right uh, scope of, of that regulation and let alone the speed that I mentioned. So to conclude, it's not going to kind of cut it. We, we have to, it's fine. And, and also with GDPR, I know that we are very, you know, really respected for that worldwide. I was just in discussion with the Japanese minister and they really liked the way we approached that with GDPR. GPDR. But again, this is not going to bring prosperity. And so, fine, let's do it where it makes sense and complement, let's say, uh, overly excessive use and misuse of data. But what we need, first and foremost, we need prosperity and therefore we need innovation that is really applied. Somehow the innovation dilemma, isn't it? Starting with the frictional opportunity and rather seeing the opportunities. Yeah. So maybe opportunity is also a responsible AI, so a responsible use of AI. And that there are certain key you know, phrases in there what about trustworthiness, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's industrial grade, which I, I highly like, actually, you know, because we need somehow, I don't know, B2B and, you know, applying an AI in manufacturing process is a different twist than a consumer tech, let's say, right? From device, from you know, liabilities is like, can that be a USP and should that be a USP for, for us, maybe also in the greater uh, network of Europe? I think it, it, as I said earlier, I think it can. Uh, I th and and we, we really should look at it where, where that is required and where also existing laws are not regulating it because the, the machine data, of course, needs to be regulated in a different way than, than personal data does. And so, so that distinction is very, very critical. Mm -hmm. um, I would keep it lean, though, yeah? mm -hmm. and uh, because it may stifle um, innovation as it really does. And uh, and to be honest, that's where uh, talents today also uh, they do have choice, and uh, they will go to that environment there where that is the most fertile and uh, where they have the most benefit. And so many of them actually are not going to Europe, but they rather go to, to the United States or to China. Well, actually, China is China for China, but nonetheless, these are environments where this is much easier. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Speaking of the young generation, maybe even Gen Z, um, they are like many times also seen as a very, very purpose-driven uh, generation. So maybe one differentiator uh, for us as Europe um, might be, or for us at Siemens, might be um, in distinguishing between the purpose behind an AI case. So does the AI solution really solve any challenge that is truly important in today's world or not? And because we vividly see that there's an increasing overall awareness for the severity um, of climate change, for example, and the urgence for climate action, or uh, on a broader sustainability level, we see more and more regulations like the plastics ban or a general trend, for instance, towards resource efficiency in order to fight pollution. And our customers and even investors, um, like the World Economic Forum also showed, are demanding more and more transparency and action in the field of sustainability. So how are we at Siemens currently responding to this? And how do we really create an impact, not only business-wise, but also with regards to the people and planet? Yeah, well, wow, Aubrey, this is, a, this is a very big question, but you're absolutely right. 
I mean, what does get us out of bed in the morning? And, and for sure, it's not just making any profits. It's really doing something meaningful with a very limited amount of time that we have on this planet. So absolutely, you're absolutely right. We, we see that that the next generation is is really looking for that purpose part. And uh, and I believe we have we have a lot of purpose. As a matter of fact, in Siemens, we talk about technology with purpose. Now, you may raised one aspect of it, uh, which is, of course, the sustainability and the decarbonization effort. Now, let me, before I go in there, let me also point out there's many others. We have a huge demographic challenge, yeah, in, let's say, in, in Europe in particular, and in Germany, in Japan, in China, um, where, where we really have to rethink of how to maintain the level of prosperity while we have actually have a shrinking workforce going forward. Who's going to pay for this? How are we going to make this work? We believe that automation, digitalization have a huge role to play in that. But let's take that aside. Let's go really on, on the big thing nowadays. And that is all about, of course, the question about decarbonization. Why? Because there's the running cry that we realize is that finally scientists have their say that with the Paris Accord and the one and a half degrees Celsius uh, plan, that by 2030, we really have to implement the technologies that are already in use today. Yeah? And we know that if we put them out to use swiftly, without inventing actually any new technology, we can get to the one and a half degrees. That's what scientists still think. But we have to do it now and we have to do it swiftly. If you look into this space, though, you'll find that um, there's always four major verticals or industries that, that, are, that are looked at when we talk about um, decarbonization. There's transportation there's building, there's industry, and there's agriculture. Now, agriculture, Siemens is not as much into it, but the other three, that's exactly right down our alley with regards to, um, of course, transportation, with regards to buildings, with regards to making industries more efficient. That's perfectly suiting everything that we just said. Take buildings just as one example, because the trains, I think, are self-evident. Um, so, so, of course, um, battery-driven trains or hydrogen-powered trains, which we also develop. But uh, let's take buildings, because buildings are such a big polluter, in a way, or consumer of energy. And we know that 80% of the costs of a building occur in the life cycle. And we know that this 80%, we can cut tr down dramatically because today a third goes by wasted. So perfect. So with, with you know automation and digitalization, um, everything that we spoke about, we can trim, um, of course, CO2 emissions tremendously. So that's really what many people actually get us to Siemens because I always ask them, so why have you chosen Siemens? And they will exactly say what you said earlier with regards to the purpose, working on something like that, something meaningful, goes a super long way. Yeah, and I, I also strongly believe that innovation is just the right response for sustainability or to tackle like the greatest challenges that we have. And this is also why we at Siemens are so powerful in that regard in the end. So we touched upon quite a lot of aspects. So maybe we should talk a little bit about culture because culture is also a driver for innovation, right? And um, if we look at some stats, for example, in the EPO's 2020 patent index, Siemens ranks um, 11th when it comes to the submitted patent applications in the field of AI to the EPO. And on a more general note, according to the BCG, so your former employer, Uh, Siemens ranks 
11th globally in the most innovative companies 2021 report. So it seems to be quite difficult for us to reach the top 10. Um, both statistics point to a high level of innovativeness at Siemens. But um, given you, if you pause, then you lose attitude. I'd assume you're happy, but still pushing for more. So what's the ambition you want to set here? How shall we measure innovativeness from your point of view? Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the, the study that you mentioned, what, what I took great pride in is that at a BCG study, um, uh, there was a question to the foreign company surveyed of what is the most innovative company that they would consider. Yeah? So you could mention companies and Siemens has been mentioned so, so many times, which I can take great pride in. Um, you know, I think actually number 11, and you may say now, come on, you know, we were one, 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 number one is really tough in today's race. That should not be our ambition. Our ambition should be always to be among the leaders. And I would consider us being among the leaders. I give you different statistics though to, to that, and that is, Look at our market capitalization at Siemens, and that is 112. Yeah, it's, we are the 112th most valuable company in the world, but we are the 11th most innovative company in the world. So when we say technology with purpose, to me, that's the purpose gap. Yeah, so those 101 places in the market capitalization are really where we have to bring that technology to the purpose because that's technology we already have, but we have to put them into productive use in the, for the benefit of society, for the benefit of our customers, for the benefit of people. And that's uh, where I'm aiming at right now. Not so much whether I can get now to place number nine. I would take great pride in that, but I really want to see that technology being applied and making meaningful contribution to society. So much of what you just mentioned really reminds me of a startup like Attitude. And um, there's also much that has been said about acquiring some of the traits of startups in order to become quicker and more and more focused. And um, Siemens might then no longer be that slow dinosaur in threat of extinction. Yet still, it's a long way for a corporate giant like we are with all its inertia and complexity to become a fleet of digital AI speedboats keeping up with the speed of others. So what's in your point of view, the key measures that we have to take to really accelerate here? Mm Coming just out of the Siemens Business Conference, yeah, our annual conference where, where we have the, the 400 top leaders, um, Roland, our CEO, made a really good point. And that is, we have to accelerate our clock speed, the way we do things at Siemens, because, of course, competition is moving faster and the startups are really, really fast, as you mentioned, Avery. Um, the thing, though, is that we have to differentiate between the core business that is large and where there's a lot of sustaining activities happening, but that's proven where we know exactly what to do, where we know our customers, where we know the technology, where there's little disruption, and that is just fine. And there you can go on a slower pace. And we have to differentiate with, with those opportunities that are an environment that are high, un, highly unlikely, where you don't know which technology is going to prevail. You don't know the dynamics. You don't know the players yet. Uh, for example, our EV charging business, where, you know, I mean, we have to see of how that's going to emerge with regards to all the charging stations in the market mm. 
It's very, very dynamic. It's a matter of days or weeks to make decisions as opposed to weeks and months. And so this is where we will be going forward, managing these businesses in a different way when it comes down to talent, when it comes down to capitalization, but also when it comes down to structure so that we can liberate them. And exactly as you said, that they can compete head to head with our competitors in the startup world that we have out there. Yeah, that's greatly put, actually. So uh, we are still somehow, to be fair, in a, in a pandemic, right? We're facing the pandemic. What would you say, you know, how has the current pandemic and this current situation influenced your leadership style? Can you give us a bit of, has that something? I guess it has some, some, some impact, right? It really has. It, it really has. Uh, and uh, there's so many things. <laughs> I, I would take two though if, if I had to prioritize because we don't have the time uh, and, and number one is of course this empowerment uh, that we talk a lot about and uh, it really shifts from input to output right in the past you would say okay are people around and you know uh, I mean what kind of, of you know schedules are we on and so on but all of that is meaningless uh, if, if you don't know that the people are working so all of a sudden, what really uh, is important is actually it's not when you do it or where you do it. It really doesn't matter actually where you do it and when you do it, as long as you do it and as long as there's great results and that create value to the company. And that's mm. really moving from input to output. Uh, that has accelerated. I'd seen that before, but but actually this is really accelerating. This is great for me and for, for all of my, my colleagues that I can see as well. The second is empathy. And um, you can bring so much empathy when you sit, of course, in a meeting room and, and you can read body language and so on. But you can't do that if you only see a third of the body uh, on the screen. And, you know, so much information is just get lost in translation. And, uh, and it's very important to have an extra smile or to have another session of just, you know, just the question at the end, actually, how are you doing? And, and you know, you really do care, showing more emotions intentionally so that you have this kind of counterbalance to the very factual, transactional, getting information exchanged through a, you know, a 2D screen. And that's that's where you have to overcompensate for that. These are the two things I, I'd say that uh, that uh, that uh, really have uh, have affected me. Also in reading body language, by the way, which now also makes me in the better world much more, you know, uh, effective because you really have to be focused and you have to uh, get in the details when you when you talk over over Zoom or Teams or whatever that is. Or ZenCaster. Or ZenCaster. That's right. <laughs> there you go. So. What, you know, we're coming a bit of to the end, but before that, right, what advice would you give, right? If, you know, pushing innovation in, in, in large corporate, right? Um, it's sometimes crazy, right? It can be really, you know, you know, very demanding, energized, frustrating maybe sometimes, right? What advice would you, you know, give those genius minds out to the young folks out there, you know, uh, who are willing to dare, you know, to try to get on with crazy ideas um, and want to make an impact here? Is there... Anything you would have loved to hit back when you were actually sitting in, in you know, in college, kids' lectures clubs, right, on your alma mater, um, to hear and say, like, oh, yeah, I should have known that before? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great question. The, uh, I'd say that uh, it's actually the open mind. 
And uh, it's not so much at the beginning. I mean, maybe, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? So, so we all go through the same kind of education. So we all go to high school uh, or gymnasium, yeah, gymnasium in German. And, uh, and, and so which is pretty general, right? So there's no distinction between your, your education and my education, pretty much. But then you're forced. You're forced to pick something. And, uh, and that already kind of, you know, we think actually determines uh, of who we are and what we like. And then you engage into five years of university or even, you know, additional years of, of any kind of um, 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 PhD studies. And then we box ourselves into it and we say, well, I am industrial engineer. I am a mechanical engineer. And we make this I am thing, which, which actually then that becomes our personality. I don't believe that this is actually the case because you, we are so many things and you always have to f be curious and to look around. I tell you, I, I, had, I had no idea uh, when, when, I, when, I, when I always wanted to build airplanes and I had no idea about automation. I had no idea AI in, in, uh, in, in healthcare. I had no idea of how to run the technology department. I had no idea of how to run a strategy department. I had no idea to be uh, in R&D first and foremost. So there's so many things I, I didn't know. So you have to explore them with an open mind. Be always curious. Don't think of only because somebody told you, well, these people tend to be like that. Those, I don't know, pick a function or pick a company. And very often that's actually not true. So explore explore with an open mind always challenge yourself and don't make this i am thing because i believe in the diversity in everybody's you know uh, abilities and and uh, just just explore so inspiring thanks so much Peter, we are almost at the very, very end of the session. Time was really flying with you. And I think we could have talked for hours and uh, we should maybe do that at some point. So thanks so much for all the passion and the food for thought that you shared here today. It was like great pleasure. It was a lot of fun. And maybe to make it a little bit more fun, uh, we could play a game. It's actually my favorite game. It's Authentic Autocomplete. And we play it with every genius mind. And it's super simple. So I will just give you for the clo closing a couple of sentence starters. And then you will finish. Pitcha, are you ready? Uh, yes, Avery. Bring it on. I am ready. You're ready. Perfect. So let's start with an easy one. Siemens is... A fantastic place to work because you really can have an impact. I totally agree. Technology with purpose is? Well, starting with the customer in mind. Amazing. The best advice I was ever given was? That maybe what I think is important is not important at all. That's deep. <laughs> If I could change one thing in the world immediately, it would be? Prejudice. Absolutely. And last but not least, it's quite a tough one, but I believe in you. So after 174 years of Siemens, the next big thing in, let's say, 30 years will be? Living in a semi-real and digital world. Love it. 
Thanks so much, Peter, uh, for your you know openness, for your willing to share, for being such a clarity uh, person and an awesome mind, actually. And we are super proud and super honored to you know have you with us um, on on the podcast show. Thank you. And folks out there, stay tuned. There is a lot more to come. I don't know what, but you know, stay tuned, stay bold, committed, and open-minded, and we hear us at the next Siemens AI Lab podcast. Cheers. Thank you.